Luke chapter 13, stand with me as we read from God's word this morning. Luke, I'm sorry, chapter 16. We're in verse 13. Luke 16, 13. This is God's word and like it or not, it is his word. And if you let it, it will change your life. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Pray with me. Father, you can't make it any more clear than that. We are not able to serve two masters. Father, help us choose this day whom we will serve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God and I have been having a wrestling match over the last few days, and i got to tell you, um, I would not be surprised if I would limp by the end of today. Thank you, Jim. Um, he is not letting me off easy. Um, I am convinced that our biggest problem, not only as Christians, but as people in general, is that we want to play both sides of the fence. We want to serve two masters. We think that we can just give a little here and give a little there and it'll all be all right. And the problem is that you cannot serve two masters. You're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. You're going to, you're going to obey one and you're going to disobey the other. I say this because every single sin that I happen to find in my life, and trust me, there are plenty of them, Every single one comes from me trying to serve, well, let's be honest, me. Every bit of anger, every jealousy, every, every little bit of greed, lust, every, every bit of sin that I find, every time I'm proud, it, it comes from me wanting to serve me. It's never me wanting to serve God. James chapter 1, verse 20 He's talking about, in verse 19, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And then he says in verse 20, for the anger of men does not produce the righteousness that God desires. You see, the problem is that when we're trying to serve ourselves, we cannot serve God. And when we're trying to serve God, we're not going to serve ourselves. Now, now, I want you to hear me on this because I'm not saying that this is just an us problem. This has been a human problem from time immemorial. Look back in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24. Joshua is about to die. He has led the Israelites to conquer most of Canaan. They haven't even done all of it yet because, well, they just quite didn't carry it out to completion. Have you ever, you ever sang that song? You start to do something right and then you just kind of stop along the way somewhere and you never quite finish. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure my middle name should be doesn't finish because <laughs> Carrie can attest to the number of things that I've started and not finished. But see, the, the fact is, um, they, they go to conquer this land. And a lot of the conquering isn't really even them. It's God doing the conquering. It's God is the one that's conquering. Well, in fact, listen, listen to some of chapter 24. Then... Uh, um, this is in verse 3. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I'm sorry, y'all. 
And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you. And I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I gave them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you have not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Do you see a pattern? I, 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 I. You took possession. I, I, I. <laughs> right? There's almost nothing active in that whole passage that anybody else does but God. And when it is active, it's the Egyptians pursued you, but then I beat them. It's God doing all this work, which makes what comes next all the more disheartening, but all the more familiar of all the things that God has done for us. How often do we need to be told what Joshua says next? Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Isn't it sad that after all that that God does, he still has to tell him, now put away those false gods. See, they, they want to ride the fence. They want to serve God and serve Baal. Serve God and serve Asherah. Serve God and serve fill in the blank. Whatever gods you want to put in there, really, they want to serve both God and themselves. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, which I know it's not, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, Joshua's point is you've got to make choice. You know, that, that's not the only time this choice has to be presented. First Kings. In First Kings, we find this prophet named Elijah. He is... Elijah's kind of funny uh, because, well, well, when you get down to it, really, uh, all of God's prophets are kind of funny. They look weird. They act weird. They talk weird. They do weird things. Um, but maybe they're weird because they're demonstrating what a full-hearted devotion to God looks like. And that's so weird because we're often riding the fence trying to serve two masters, trying to serve God and ourselves that we miss we miss what, what we really should be doing. Maybe the prophets look weird because well, they're right. And all of us looking at them say, 
That's weird because we're not right. He's up on top of Mount Carmel. He issues the challenge. He says, y'all want to worship Baal? I want to worship Yahweh? Let's see who the true God is. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Because that's really what it is, right? It's limping. You can't serve two different masters. You can't serve two different gods. You can't worship at your own idol and worship before God. You can't put God in his rightful place and you be in charge. That doesn't work. Maybe. Maybe our problem is that we've been limping between two different opinions. We try to serve God over here. We serve him when it's convenient. We serve him when we when we know it's a big thing and we really need his help. But then we serve ourselves over here when it's just easy and convenient for us to do that. I'm preaching this because, well, that's what Jesus talks about in this text. Luke 16, 13, no man can serve two masters. An example of that happens in the parable before. There's this manager. I'm going to summarize it for you. He is the steward of a house. The steward would have been the one controlling everything about the house. Think part Accountant, part, human resources manager, part, I don't know, general manager. He is, he is the one in charge of everything. He's making sure the house is running smoothly. He's making sure that all the servants have their tasks and are doing them properly. He's the one making sure that the house has plenty of supplies. He's the one that's making sure that all the books are correct, that all the debtors are paying their debts. He's the one making sure that everything is happening the way that it's supposed to. The problem with this manager is he's not doing a very good job. In fact, he's squandering the owner's resources and the owner calls him to account. He says, it's time to turn in the books. I know you're cheating me. You can't be my manager anymore. Now this creates a crisis because that servant, that steward was a servant. He was a slave. So not only was he losing his job, he was losing his home. He was losing food. He was losing everything. He realized, oh no, what am I going to do? He debates and he debates and he debates and then finally in verse 4 he says, I've decided what I will do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He says, I know my time is up. Now I've got to make other plans. I, I know what I'm going to do. And so one by one, he calls in the master's debtors. And from the way it reads, it seems like it's not just one or two of them. It seems like he's calling all of them in. And he says, how much do you owe? First one says, I owe 100 measures of oil. Sit down and make it 50. Write 50 on that bill. You only owe 50 now. Another one comes up. He says, how much do you owe? This guy says, I owe 100 measures of wheat. Write, write, write down 80. You only owe 80 now. What is he doing? At first, I thought he's forgiving his master's debtors. That's not what he's doing. The reason I know that's not what he's doing is because of what Jesus says a little bit later. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, and I tell you, make friends. He, he's giving the, um, he's kind of giving a lesson to the disciples from the parable. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now that might sound like something that's completely different and something that Jesus shouldn't be teaching us, right? Are we saying now that we should just make friends by just, just get our ill-gotten gains and spend the money on other people so that we make a bunch of friends so they can take care of us? Is that what he's saying? Not really. You see, that, that, 
that, that word for unrighteous, that's the same word used in the prior verse to describe the servant. It says dishonest in some translations. My translation says dishonest, but it's the exact same word. It's unrighteous. This is a wicked servant, but Jesus is using him as an example. Why? Because you can't serve two masters. Where did I get that? Well, verse 13. But he's trying to serve two masters, but he's really only serving one, isn't he? I mean, what kind of a servant squanders his master's goods? What kind of a servant gets rich while cheating someone else? He's embezzling money, y'all. That's what he's doing. He's not just embezzling money. He's wasting possessions, too. He's not managing the affairs of that house properly. And when he's called to account, he says, well, I better do something because I'm losing this job. I'm losing my livelihood. I better do something. I think he honestly, from the way that this story reads, I think he uses all that money that he embezzled to pay off some of his master's debts, to pay off the ones who owed his master. I don't think he's telling them, reduce your bill. I think he's telling them, I've got you for 50 of it. You just pay the other 50. I'm going to cover 20 of that for you. You cover the other 80. I think what he's saying is, I'm going to pay off part of your debt because all this ill-gotten gain that I've gotten, I'm about to lose it all anyway. So I may as well, in the process, do something right with all the wrong that I've done. There is never a point in time where it's too late to do what's right. No matter how bad you've been, no matter how long you've been that way, it is never, never, never too late to do the right thing. Now, sometimes it's too late to avoid consequences. Sometimes it's too late. I think of the story of Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the worst kings in Israel's history. You talk about false gods. Man, he put them up all over the place. He was wicked as wicked could be. He was so wicked, in fact, that future kings got compared to him. He set the standard of wickedness. But when he was really old, something happened. When Manasseh was really old, he began to see the error of his ways, and he began to repent. By then, it was too late for his son. His son carried on the wickedness. Didn't last very long. And then Manasseh's grandson, I believe he was eight years old at the time, a young man by the name of Josiah. Anybody ever heard of Josiah? I'm firmly convinced that Manasseh, as an old man, put Josiah on his knee and said, don't be like me. Don't do what I did. Don't make the mistakes that I made. Don't follow the ways of your dad. I used to do that. You follow God. I'm firmly convinced of that. Because what you see in Josiah's life is a radical 180 degree turn. It's never too late to do the right thing. Whether you're on your deathbed, whether you've been crouched in sin for so long and you feel like there's nothing else I can do. It is never too late to turn to the right God, to turn to the true God and say, I'm worshiping you now. Forget me. Forget all the other junk. Forget all the other false gods. I'm worshiping you, God. You are the God who I'm serving. It's never too late. And I see that in this guy, in this, this dishonest manager, that he finally does something right. And yeah, the gains may have been ill-gotten, but now he's finally doing something worthwhile with them. There's an interesting parallel. It's, it's, you can kind of hear it, but it takes a little bit of time to really work it out. I know, because I had to work it out. Verse 4, he says, When I lose the management, they'll receive me into their homes. Verse 9, 
It says so that when that unrighteous wealth fails, in other words, when I lose all of this stuff that I've been so worried about for so long, when I lose it all, then I could be received. He says, then they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You see what's going on here? What he's saying is, you know, there comes a point where even no matter how wrong you've been, where you turn it around and you start doing right, and it's amazing at the blessing that comes as a result. That eternal dwellings, by the way, eternal tents. It's kind of an interesting combination, isn't it? We don't think of tents as eternal. We think of mansions as eternal. We don't think of tents that way. Tents are temporary. Tents can be taken down and moved. They're made to be portable. These tents are eternal tents. Maybe perhaps Jesus is saying more than just make good friends while you can. Maybe he's saying you need to turn from your wicked ways and turn to him. Maybe he's saying you need to quit serving the other gods and serve me. Because you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and Baal. You cannot serve God and yourself. You cannot serve two different masters. You can't. It's impossible. And because it's impossible, you're going to pick one. You need to pick the right one. He goes on a little bit further as he's explaining this parable, as he's given us the the general truths that apply to all of life that we see displayed in the parable. He says in verse 10, one who is faithful in very little will be faithful in much. You cannot be faithful with a little and not be faithful in much. Why not? Because if you're faithful in the little things, you are truly faithful. That that little, very little, uh, the word is insignificant. See, because what you do with the insignificant will be what you do with the important what you do with the little things, what you do with the things that don't matter, what you do with the things that seem to be worthless anyway. That's what you will end up doing with big things. Mind your dimes and the dollars will take care of themselves. You heard that? Originally it was British. Mind your pennies and your pounds will take care of themselves. The idea is if you will be faithful with the little things, if you will treat the little things right and you prove you handle the big things, that's why we don't give cars to three-year-olds. We give what are they called? Cozy Coops? They can handle a Cozy Coop. They can't handle your minivan. Can they? Sometimes your 16-year-old can't handle a the car. If you can show that you're faithful with the little things, you can be entrusted with the bigger things. Verse 11, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, if, here's another shade of meaning to that word. It's not just unrighteous. It's not just always the wrong things. It can also be the, well, the temporary things. The things that aren't really righteous in and of themselves. Take, for example, money. Money is not good. Money is not bad. Money is just money. What you do with it that matters. When you love it, that's a problem, right? I seem to remember some Bible verse talking about the love of money and the root of all evil. Y'all... Y'all remember that one? Yeah. You see, when, when you do the wrong thing with it, when it becomes your master, that's a problem. But money's good if you handle it well. You can use money for all kinds of good things. Money can be a means for doing God's work. Money can be a means for missions going all over the world. Money can be a means for helping people in need. Money can be good, money can be bad. It all depends on how you use it, right? If you don't know how to use money, the riches that aren't really going to last, how are you going to know how to handle the true riches? 
If you can't handle the basic things, how are you going to handle the advanced things? If you can't handle the physical, how can you handle the spiritual? That's why you can't serve two masters. Because God doesn't require your best. God requires your all. There's no less. And boy, has he been hitting me with that one. That I'm pretty sure God's using a steel chair to hit me on that one. He requires everything of me and everything of you. And let me tell you something. He is worth everything of me and everything of you. You cannot serve two masters. And if you haven't been faithful in what belongs to someone else, how can you be faithful in what belongs to you? How can you be trusted with your own? There comes a point in time when you have to make a choice of which master you're serving. And if we are not good stewards of what God has entrusted to us, we are proving ourselves to not be serving him. Everything we do will either go for him or against him. It will either be part of his kingdom work or it will be opposed to his kingdom. There's no in-between. There's no riding the fence with God. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Why do you keep going about limping between two different opinions? If God is God, serve him. If he's not God, then find someone worth serving. But you can't ride the fence. Jesus doesn't let us ride the fence. No man can serve two two masters. He will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In this example, he draws the distinction between God and money. But you fill in the blank. Maybe money's not your God. Maybe your God is popularity. Maybe you are so willing to be accepted and to be loved that you are willing to do whatever it takes to have the approval of someone else. Maybe, maybe your God is your own selfishness. I want it and I want it now. It's all mine. Maybe your God is the fact that you just don't want to admit that anybody else could be right and you could be wrong. Maybe your God is just the incessant need to be right, to be best, to be on top, to win, to be the victor. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how, how insignificant the battle is. You have to be the one who wins. I know because I are one. That's a God I have to slay. That's a God that I have to continue to slay. We all have them. Those, those things that keep vying for our attention, vying for our love, vying for our affection, vying for everything within us that keeps sucking it out of us. And all the while, God is standing saying, when are you going to get rid of that crap shoot of a God and actually worship me? When are you going to get rid of the God that is enslaving you and worship the God who, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed? When are you going to get rid of the crap that keeps insisting on your allegiance and give it to the one who's worthy? Well, how long is it going to take? How long are we going to keep vacillating between two different opinions? How long are we going to go around limping saying, I want to do this, but I want to do that, but I want to do this, but I want to do that? When are we going to stop and say, God, you are the one I serve and no one else? Augustine talks about this fight. He mentions, he mentions the fact that it's like he has two different wills that are opposed to each other. I want, I want to give everything to God, but this other will just pulls me back. And every time I think I'm going to get close, it keeps pulling me back. 
How long will it be that my will will be no longer divided from you? He's in anguish and pain because he just can't give it up. And he's to the point of tears, to the point that he doesn't want to look or, or, or talk to anybody. He's on a park bench and he's wrestling with this in his head and he's trying to work through it and he just can't get there. And then finally he hears something. He hears a child over in a playground nearby, over playing in a yard somewhere say, take up and read, take up and read. He said, I've never heard that expression in a child's game before. He opens up, he reads, he reads one verse. And then he says, I stopped reading and put it down. I couldn't read anymore, and I had no need to. See, what happens, what happens when we finally choose to serve God is that we're made whole. You wonder why you haven't felt whole? You wonder why something seems to be missing or something's not right? Maybe it's because you're not whole. Maybe it's because you've been trying to serve two masters. It's time to choose. It's time to choose. Father, I have a feeling I'm not the only one wrestling with the difficulty of serving you only. I, I, I feel like that's probably common. I feel like a lot of us have been riding the fence. A lot of us have been just straddling the line for so long saying, God, I, I, I want to serve you, but what about... And so many of us have been saying, God, I, I'm ready to do what you want me to do, but first let me, as soon as I'm done with this, as soon as I get to this place, as soon as I finish school, as soon as I, I, I get settled down, as soon as, as, soon as I get retired, I'm, I'm going to follow you. I feel like so many of us are just weary from battle, from the fight of, of trying to serve ourselves and serve you. So many of us have been so caught up in whatever it might be. to surrender to you. 
compel them to come. Father, for those who do not know Christ as Savior, I pray that you would do that work, that you would help them to see their need for a Savior. God, that you would help them know that they are sinners and they cannot earn your favor on their own, but that only through Christ you be made whole. Pray that you would help them take that step, faith, but trust in you and make you master. Father, for those who have, I pray that you lead them the way they need to go, whether, whether it's to get rid of some junk that they've been holding on to for so long, or whether it's to, to follow you, to do what you've been telling them to do and they've been putting off. Whether it's to join this church, to be part of this family, God, whether it's just simply to be obedient, to tell that neighbor about Christ, to ask forgiveness of that person that they've wronged, to say no to those urges, to draw them away from you. Oh, have your way in us.